Welcome to Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in every context of Scripture for His exaltation in the Church and proclamation to the world. This podcast is a part of the Doctrinal Discipleship Ministry and a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Christ in Context. Today we are doing a special episode on Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Um, I titled this as an out-of-context episode because I don't really know what else to title it. Um, but this topic is mainly dealing with the sons of God and the Nephilim. We'll talk a little bit about the 120 years, but this passage is a really complex and complicated passage, and I had a lot of fun researching it. Uh, there was so much to read, and there is still a whole world of reading that I can do and that you guys can do if you are interested. Um, there's a lot of different opinions. Mainly, though, there's only like three big opinions, uh, and we are just going to talk about those three opinions about the sons of God. What does it mean when it says that the sons of God and the daughters of men we're making babies pretty much. So I'm going to read the passage. Um, and I'll also explain the context because it's really, really important to understand what the context is. And this isn't so much of an episode as like people take this and, you know, like take it super out of context, except for Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland is the only person that I know of who has taken this context so wildly, has taken this passage so wildly out of context that it it just doesn't make sense. So Kenneth Copeland has said himself that he is going to live for 120 years based on this passage. And there's a whole bunch of issues with that. He probably is just like most American white men probably just has health problems and is not going to live past 100. But also there's like the average age length is not 120. The average age length, I think for an American man is somewhere between 70 and 80. So he's coming pretty, pretty close. Um, I think there's a video of Justin Peters rejecting him and, you know, saying, dude, you're not going to live to 120. And it, it's kind of a funny video, but it's, it's very heartfelt. He is calling Kenneth Copeland to repentance. Um, Anyways, that's something that I just thought of off the top of my head. So, uh, let me read this passage, as I always do, from the New American Standard Bible. Um, and we'll talk about the context, what's going on, uh, what happened before, what's going to happen later. And uh, then we'll get into the three big interpretations that have kind of taken the stage. So, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
So this is only six chapters into the book of Genesis. And so in the first three chapters, we get the creation of the world, and then we get uh, the specific creation of Adam and Eve. And there's a command and a mandate that's given to Adam and Eve. And they're told to have dominion over the world, to be fruitful, multiply, to rule and um, keep like basically what's really cool is they're, they're basically given this priestly um, identity. They're, they're given a role that is Adam is specifically, some people say he's our priest king. So he is specifically given a role to uh, work or serve or, or worship in the garden. And then he's also told to guard and keep um, just as any type of like priest should uh the same word is used debar devar to uh, work or uh, serve or worship kind of depends on the context and how that's translated and then uh, shamar which is to guard or keep and so there's this priestly identity it's this really beautiful picture of god being with his people uh, in a very intimate way and then they screw it up by the temptation of the serpent and um, then they get kicked out of the garden. And so then they still have kids outside of the garden. They have Cain and Abel. And I'm sure you guys know this story, but I'm, I'm just setting it up in, in case you don't. Uh, so Cain kills Abel and um, then uh, to our surprise, Cain is not, severely punished or as severely punished as we would expect him to be. And God even says that he will protect Cain. And so then um, Cain goes off and he essentially builds a city and he, you know, takes his wife, they build a city. And while that's going on, Adam and Eve have another child. His name is Seth. And then there's not a ton that's said about Seth or what happens with Cain's city. We get to uh, chapter 5, and, well, we, we get a list of descendants of Cain, and then we get to chapter 5, and then we get the list of descendants after Seth. And so, a lot of times we skip over these genealogies, and we think that they're just really boring and should just be skipped, like, you know... They might have been important for the old readers, and it maybe meant something for them in Hebrew that it doesn't quite mean in English. You know, things like that are kind of what gets stuck in our head, but I don't think that's entirely true. Sure, the the exact age of these people isn't particularly as interesting as, you know, the flood that takes place a couple chapters later. But it is interesting and very important uh, that it's really important that we get it right, that we understand that there is something going on before the passage that we're studying. So there's a genealogy, and then we get this passage. And so there's the, the three big interpretations of the sons of God are... Either that the sons of God are these fallen angel, demon 
people who are coming and intermarrying with people, with human women, and they're procreating, and then they have these Nephilim demon-human spawn people. And so, and the problem with this is, and why there is such a variety of interpretations, is because the word Nephilim is only used twice. It's used here and in Numbers. And in Numbers, it refers to the Anakites. And it says that, you know, they were Nephilim. And the Septuagint, interestingly, translates this as giants. And so, really, the only thing that we've got working for us is our knowledge of Hebrew, that Nephilim could mean, like, fallen ones, but then we see how the Greeks translate it as uh, as giants. So there's an interesting thing going on. Did Was this another word that we just don't really have access to, that we don't have a definition of based on other writings? No one really knows. So a lot of times it just gets left as Nephilim because we don't know how else to translate it. So we just transliterate it. And so... Um, with the sons of God, they are described as either angels or demons or some type of spiritual being. And the reason that is typically um, brought up as far as like a defense for this is found in Jude and Second Peter. I'm going to flip there in my Bible really quick. And I'm just going to read the verses. It is Jude verse 6, and maybe even verse 8. I don't think verse 8 really has a ton to say about it, but it's still used. Um, So, verse 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he, God, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in the same way these men, this is verse 8, also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. And so what is commonly use this verse is commonly used or this passage is used as um defense to say see look jude understood that the angels came and lusted after another flesh that's what it says in verse six the angels who did not keep their own domain abandoned their proper abode so these angels left heaven abandoned heaven abandoned what they were supposed to do And God kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then there's a connection with Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that uh, there's a couple angels who come and visit these cities and scope it out to see if there are any righteous people. And so they stay with Lot, and then the people of Sodom come and try to rape these men, or these angels. And so there's a lot more of a 
problem besides just the homosexual uh, practices that are going on, though that is probably a large problem that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, but I think there's probably a lot more going on. Um, it wasn't just a city full of gay people. There, There's <laughs> other issues at stake. I think in Ezekiel, it talks about them having economic sin. And anyways, it's totally unrelated. So uh, Jude seems to have an idea that this is um, what happened before the flood. Um, because he talks about angels coming, leaving their natural abode. And then he says, specifically, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality. So some think that this phrase is relating the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they were defiling what they sh- what their proper way should have been. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that that's exactly what Jude is getting at, specifically because earlier in this short letter, he's discussing false teachers, um, ungodly people who are sneaking into churches and leading true believers away or trying to deceive them. And so he's reminding them that um, there is a great judgment that is prepared. There are, and he lists out these examples of um, first angels that are being held under darkness and um, you know, they are being ready for being prepared for judgment. Sorry, that's not the first one. I just was reading verse five. And he says that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So first he refers to Egypt and then he refers to angels who don't keep their domain, and then he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah, and all of this is to draw this picture of destruction of those who do not believe. And um, another reason why I don't think that this is related to uh, Genesis 6 is what Gerhardus Voss has to say. Now, I have to find this quote, um, but he says... In his book, Biblical Theology, Old and New Testaments, phenomenal book. I'm only about halfway through, but it's a really, really great book. He says, closely looked at, however, and he's dealing with Jude. uh, It is not conclusive and open to certain objections. In like manner as these is by that phrase, in like manner as these, is by some interpreters taken to link together not the angels of verse 6 and the cities of verse 7, but Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them. Uh, so, in other words, the cities around them, in, in like manner as these, Sodom and Gomorrah, were... Uh, um, sorry, I'm losing my words. They were... Um, Contributing to the sexual immorality. There we are. In that case, uh, no fornication of angels is referred to. A serious objection to the theory arises from the phrase, taking to themselves wives, 
which could mean nothing short of permanent intermarriage, not casual fornication between angels and women, a difficult thing to envisage. Finally, strange flesh seems hard to fit into the angel theory, for the angels, according to the Old Testament, are not flesh. On the other hand, the word precisely fits into what was the abomination of the cities of the plain, namely homosexuality. So, Gerhardus Voss is saying that the specific language of Jude doesn't necessarily have to point towards angels being um, having intercourse with these women. Another objection to this is also that um, the in in the Gospels in Matthew twenty two. And uh, Mark 12, Jesus specifically says that men and women will not be given or taken in marriage because they will be like the angels in heaven and they won't have a need for marriage. They, they, I, there's no more that's said about it other than they won't be given and taken because they will be like the angels in heaven. And so some people, I think I heard John MacArthur explain that the possibility for why these angels, if that's how we're going to take it, were intermarrying and uh, procreating with these women, the, the reason for this is because they weren't like the angels in heaven either. They fell. They were, um, they were not doing what they were supposed to be. So somehow they had taken up bodies of flesh, whether it's by possession or some other type of means, perhaps that's what's going on. Again, I don't think that's necessarily convincing. The other place that's used is 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5, where it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so there's a connection that's also made with angels who fell and sinned. uh, And then he talks about Noah. So clearly there's a connection there, probably about Genesis 6, right? Well, no, I don't think that's exactly what's going on. Because again, Peter's talking about false prophets, and he's talking about uh, angels who sinned, and they're being cast into darkness for as judgment of their sin. And Noah, who was a righteous man, is saved, and the rest of the unrighteous people of his day are destroyed. And so Peter is drawing on this not for the sake of proving an angelic procreation with women, but he is explaining the um, destruction that wicked people will receive and why it's so important to avoid false prophets. So I don't think that those two passages necessarily hold up. Again, all of this, I don't know if I said this already, but all of this isn't a gospel issue. It's something fun to talk about. It's something that's really, really interesting. But at the end of the day, it's not something that is super worthwhile um, debating. Um, If you're spending more time talking about this than you are about the cross of Christ, I think you might need to rethink 
where your focus is in your scripture reading. Um, it's fun to talk about, interesting. I think it does point to Christ in a particular way that we will get to in just a moment. But I don't think that this is the most important thing that we need to be arguing about. Um, with that said, the second possible interpretation that is used is found from Gerhardus Voss, who I had already read, and others like him who say that this is a lineage from Seth. These sons of God are the righteous line of Seth, and the daughters of men are the unrighteous um, descendants of Cain. And this is an interesting way to think about things. I had been persuaded by this because I'm reading through Foss's biblical theology. I read that little section that he had about it. Um, and it seems to make sense because if you go back to Genesis chapter two, you see that God breathes into Adam and gives him a, uh, so Adam is essentially the son of God he, he receives his life directly from God. And then um, Eve is, a, in a sense, a daughter of man because she is created from man. And Voss uses other um, ways to describe this um, in that there's possible Hebrew idioms that refer to distinguishing two different groups of people um, by essentially calling them like, two different categories onto themselves. Um, I've heard objections to this. One of the really important objections that I've heard is there is that the phrase sons of God refers to, it only refers to angelic beings. And that's usually as a um, argument for the angelic um divine being interpretation, which is kind of convincing. However, I will explain the third view in just a second. Um, and so the objection is, well, no, this couldn't have been a line of Seth because every other time that it refers to the B'nai Elohim or the sons of God, it's, it's talking about angels, spiritual beings. Um, so why would it be something different in this passage? Well, I would say if I was arguing f for this view, I would say that it's totally possible that there's, um, there's exceptions to the rule. You know, there's, there's times where there are things that don't happen the way that they're supposed to. Things aren't worded the way that you expect them to be, um, the other objection that I've heard, which I don't think is a very strong objection, uh, I heard it from Michael Heiser, and he's a brilliant guy, but I think he sometimes argues at the at the wrong point. And what he was saying, he was, he was kind of raising the question, like, "Well, what are the are are men only righteous, and then are are these?" Is it only the women who are the, the sinful ones? And he was kind of arguing in, in a sense of asking, like, what kind of patriarchal nonsense are you arguing for? Um, which I don't think anyone would necessarily 
who is arguing for this view would be inclined to say that this is to prove that men are more righteous and women are less righteous or some type of nonsense like that. Um, it's one of those things where it's an appeal to emotion to try to get people amped up and be like, yeah, yeah, in your face. See, you're wrong. The other thing that he was talking about before he got to that point was a specific ancient Near Eastern document, which he's really good at knowing about. Um, and he was saying that the only way that you can interpret Genesis chapter 6 in this particular passage is if you know about this specific document. I think that's a little bit too binding of a thing to say um, to anyone. I don't know the specific group that he was talking to. If he was talking to a group of scholars, then perhaps that's something that they should always consider. But if he's talking to like a group of people who are just a group of laity, like I think that's a little too binding of a statement to make. But that's just my thoughts. The last thing, which is the view that I am the most convinced of as of right now, and I'm willing to be persuaded in another direction. Like I said, this is not a gospel issue. This is just a fun conversation to have, something fun to talk about. Um, but this last view is really interesting, and I hadn't actually heard about it until I was studying this, and it's that these sons of God is referring to kingly rulers. And this is primarily known as like the uh, Meredith Klein view because he kind of kickstarted this view. He's, he's known for holding this view. He's known for a lot of other things. He's a brilliant Old Testament scholar. And so his idea and his understanding of this is that this is the sons of God refers to the uh, the kingly rulers over um, who who had different cities and they were taking whatever wives they wanted. They were basically collecting harems in order to be more powerful rulers. And what's really, really interesting is that this fits the ancient Near Eastern context so well, and I think it fits the context of the passage perfectly. The reason for this is, as I mentioned, there are lineages, and after Cain kills his brother and um, God vows to protect him, and Cain goes and he builds a city. He's known as... You know, he's he's the founder of the second city of the world. There's Eden, and then there's Cain's city. So we get these two lineages that follow, and then we're back to the passage we were talking about. And so what's interesting is they're called sons of God, which is a totally common way uh, for any king of the ancient Near East to refer to themselves, especially if you look at um, the like engravings from Egypt. Like in ancient Egypt, it's filled with kings who called themselves, they either called themselves directly God or they called themselves the son of whoever. 
And so there's this abundance of evidence that these kings would have called themselves sons of God. And what we understand about the sons of God is that they're not just, um, well, there, there's no like moral statement that's made about these people until after the situation is described. So we get information that they are, they're sons of God and there's daughters of men, they're intermarrying. And then, uh, they have these children and the Lord says that his spirit will not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And so the, the Nephilim are supposedly these children. Uh, when, so the Nephilim were on the earth of those days and also afterward when the sons of God became when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And so presumably these Nephilim are the children of these sons of God. And if we're understanding that these sons of God are kings, then it would make sense that their children would be mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And one of the arguments that Klein gives as far as who these mighty men are um, Later in chapter 10 of Genesis, um, we see one of the descendants of Noah, specifically uh, the son of Ham, who's the son of Cush, and uh, Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth. And it's the same word, the same term that's used in chapter 6 to describe these Nephilim. So it's it seems like it's a ruler of a city because after that it says he was mighty one of the earth. He was a mighty hunter uh, before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Cana and the land of Shinar. So there's this mighty man who has a kingdom. There's other places where, like, Psalm 82 uh, describes judges or rulers of uh, regions as gods. Um, There's also Psalms that say that men are just a little lower than gods. So there's this picture of people with really, really high authority being labeled as sons of God. Or in some way, something near to that. So that's um, basically what we've got. Our three options are either they're demons or some type of spiritual angelic being. They are the lineage of Seth or they are kingly rulers. And I think that the kingly rulers interpretation fits the the context of the ancient Near East and stays with the context of the passage at its best. And so, like I said, there's no moral judgment that's made about them until after. And it's in verse five that we see that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
So it seems like everyone who is a part of this sons of God and daughters of men are totally wicked. They're only wicked continually. And so the Lord sends a flood. And what's interesting is there's 120 years that's mentioned before the flood. And there's two ways that we can look at this. We can either say that 120 years means that people will only live to be 120 years old. Or we can look at it and understand it as 120 years as a clock ticking before God sends the flood. I think it's the second one because of a couple reasons. Um, First of all, I don't think that it necessarily prescribes people to live as 120 years because there's plenty of people who follow the flood that live beyond 120 years. Secondly, I'm looking up the oldest person alive right now. The oldest person alive is 117 years old. Uh, The oldest person to ever live apparently was Thomas Parr. Um, Let's keep going. People to live beyond 120. Oh, man, I'm getting all sorts of weird articles. Anyways, so the point is our experience, though it's not normal for people to live to 120, it's really, really a strange thing for people to even live beyond 100, but 120, like, it's pretty crazy. Um, and it would make the most sense uh, that God would give a warning before destruction, as he usually does. So uh, that's kind of what my my reason is for believing that the 120 years is a thing of uh, predicting dis- destruction rather than um, giving a prescription of um, how old people, like what the cap is for people to live. So I think the last thing that we can talk about, about this brief little passage, is who the Nephilim are. We've already talked a a good bit about who they possibly are based on the context. They are either fallen ones or giants or legendary heroes or legendary kings. Probably not heroes, probably just kingly people with a great reputation or um, famous people. Um, And the reason why they might, some people think that they're these giant angel spirit creatures are because the Septuagint translates, um, like I've already said, it translates Nephilim as giants. However, we got to understand that the Septuagint is not always a literal word-for-word translation. There's a lot of places throughout the Septuagint where it uses different words in a peculiar way specifically to give it a little bit of a thoughtful interpretation of, you know, what what's the meaning behind this? And our translations do this 
all the time. I was just reading in uh, the book of Psalms, um, the NASB translates this phrase as um, it's literally the daughter of an eye or the daughter of the eye um, as the apple of the eye. And it's taking this uh, translational leap specifically just for the sake of readability to communicate what's going on. And so I think that this word giant or in Greek gigantes is referring to the nature of their uh, personality, the nature of their rulership, like how well they're known. And we, we use this phrase all the time to refer to like the giants of the faith. You know, we talk about uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, um, Theodore Beza, all kinds of people as, you know, like the giants of the Reformation, the giants of um, Protestantism, the giants of the ancient church, you know, like Augustine. Um, I don't think it's very far-fetched for a translator to just use this word to refer to them as important people rather than literally physical giant people. So, with all of that being said, um, our last question is, well, where is Christ in the context of this? And that's a tough question. Because if we're understanding these sons of God, well, if we're just understanding the passage itself, these sons of God aren't very great people, and so we don't want to connect the sons of God to Jesus because they're coming down and just procreating with with people. So if they're angels, then they're not doing what they're supposed to be. They're procreating with people. If they are from the line of Seth, then they are a godly line corrupting their godly line by procreating with ungodly people. And if we're taking it as the kingly view, then they are kings procreating and collecting harems, which is not a godly or good thing to do. And then the Lord looks at them and says that it's that his spirit won't strive with them. Well, what's really cool is the Old Test or the New Testament interprets a little bit after and talks about the flood. And says that uh, we will be saved in the the baptism of Christ. So I gotta find it. First Peter chapter three, which is probably my my Lutheran friend loves to use this to try to tell me that baptism literally saves, which I don't agree with um, because. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, starting at verse 18, says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient now, who once were disobedient uh when the patience of God kept waiting 
in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the river. So here we get this understanding of the 120 years as the patience of God waiting for God to uh, save a small remnant. He's not going to totally destroy. He's going to save a group of people. And how does he save them? Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. As in, it's not about the physical water touching you that saves you. But it's an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's being joined with Christ and uh, joining him in his death and resurrection that will save you. It's not the actual act of baptizing, though it's a very, very important uh, symbolic act that I as a Baptist think each person who is baptized must be a uh, professing believer, but (laughs) that's another discussion for another day. Anyways, so where do we find Christ in the context of this passage? Well, when we read a little bit later about the flood and the impending doom, we realize that he's not there. and He's the one that's sending the judgment, and that's why we need him. That's the mystery that is in the Old Testament, that he's, that the flood is a, a symbol of our joining with Christ, of the destruction of our old ways, and the joining in Christ in the, the new creation. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I know it might have been a little bit drawn out at times, but uh, let me know what you think. If you liked it, share it with people. Uh, The best way for this podcast to continue to grow and get out to people is by word of mouth. I share it on social media, but that only gets a little bit of um, shares. It gets a little bit of attention. The best way for this to grow, if you really enjoy what we're doing, what we're talking about, share it with people, tell people about it. Um, If there's something that you want to hear me talk about, that you have questions about, if there's something that I said in this specific podcast that you have questions about, let me know. Reach out to me. I've got an email, ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. I'm all over social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can find me, DM me, whatever you want to do. I think that's all for this time. So until next time, read your Bible, bro. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen. And subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the show, reach out on social media or email us at ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and Doctrinal Discipleship. For other edifying material, check out reformpodcasts.com and Doctrinal Discipleship either on Facebook or doctrinaldiscipleship.com. 